Hello, I'm Tim Biermias, and this is NPR's Book of the Day. On today's episode, two novels that center the lives of teenage boys and the complicated forces that shape them. In a minute, we'll hear about a book focused on a few hours in the life of one troubled teen. But first, The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy Africa by Stephen Burrow. It's a coming-of-age comic novel that takes place against the backdrop of some pretty intense realities, including colonialism and violence. Here, Burroughs speaks about his book and the ideas that motivated it with NPR's Camilla Dominoski. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead, Shipwreck, Treachery, and Survival at the Edge of the World by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. In Stephen Burrow's new darkly comic novel, a Nigerian teenager named Andy dreams about his father. Maybe I'm like Papa. I really want to know who the hell he is. His dusty feet, his booming voice, his grip on my shoulder. The 15-year-old doesn't know his father. It's a secret his mother keeps from him. The secret he keeps from her? A secret that's very obvious to his two best friends? That Andy dreams of white women. Blondes, to be precise. A Marilyn Monroe who has never had Mosquitoes sink in her ears and suck her blood, leaving red swellings as they fly away. A Princess Diana, who has never woken up at midnight with hunger. A Taylor Swift, who has never experienced a blackout. That, of course, is Stephen Burrow, reading from his debut novel, The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy Africa. Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, your book, the excerpt you just read, it's all in the voice of Andy. His nickname is Andy Africa. How did he get that nickname? (laughs) So it's like a school assembly, and he makes some anti-African comments. And his teacher, like, punishes him by, like, giving him that nickname. Yeah, yeah. He hates being called Andy Africa for, I mean, is it some of the same reasons why he's in some cases, really angry about living in Africa. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yes. I want to also ask a question about the very beginning of this book. The first words of the book are, Dear White People. Why did you start like that? Yeah, um, the novel is just more about Andy trying to confess his obsession for whiteness, I mean, for blonde women and, and all that. And And for me, confession is a very powerful powerful process, right? Because, I mean, it contains acceptance, courage, and all that. And it also demonstrates vulnerability. And I come from a very strong Catholic background, and and confession is a very big sacrament, actually, in the Catholic Church. And it just seemed very important, actually, for Andy to address this whiteness, these white people who have colonized him, who have forced all these ideas on him. Yeah, right. And he has this concept that he's come up with to help explain what to him is one of the mysteries in in the book, which is why is his life, why is Africa the way that it is? HXVX. Can you you explain that and tell us where you got that idea from? Andy 
often sees the huge problems that contemporary Africa experiences, Nigeria in particular. It's just so huge. It feels as if it's like a super force or something, like, like a kind of a god or something, or maybe a super villain, actually, that is actually like trying to worsen things and worsen his own situation and, and all that. And the name for God in, of course, in the Old Testament, in, in the Bible, YHWH. So Andy decides to adopt that and to call like the issues, the different issues plaguing Africa as the constructs, which he calls HSVX. Yeah. So and, so, and some of these issues involving like issues like slavery, colonialism, kleptocracy, um, the collapse of our indigenous governments and all that. Well, does does it work? <laughs> does having this this hexvex idea, this hxvx, does it make his life make more sense to him? I think it does. I think it does uh, because in the novel now, Andy uses different like tools, right? Different devices. I mean, from like mathematics because he loves math, and then poetry, and then science fiction. I mean, all the ideas about superheroes in the book and religion to unravel himself for the reader. Right. Andy loves his mother and he is so profoundly ashamed of her. And not just in like teenage boys are always embarrassed by their mother way, right? Like he also feels that she is too black, that she's not educated enough. He comments on the way that she smells sometimes, but then also, you know, he loves the way that she smells other times. It's it's complicated. Exactly, exactly. And you know, um, he's been fed all this stuff from Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood is so influential on, like, in, help, in helping teenagers, like, define their sense of self, the standards of beauty, and what's, like, what are the ideals, anyway. Yeah, so that feeling of shame and, I mean, about her blackness, and she's this very black woman, and whom he's supposed to be proud of, and he actually admits that, right? That he should appreciate her more in that sense, and uh, but he doesn't, due to, like, all that has been fed to him, yeah, as the standards of beauty and all that, yeah. You grew up in northern Nigeria, in the same area that, that Andy did, right? Exactly, yes. And now you live in England? Yeah, correct. Yeah, can I ask a personal question? How did you transition between those two different realities? Yeah, I mean, I've still not transitioned, and they there are two very powerful, starkly different uh, realities. I mean, I remember, for example, my f- very first week in the UK and how everything was was incredibly strange. I mean, I mean, for example, I couldn't just even look outside my window. I had to, like, pull my curtains tight. I mean, I closed my curtains for, like, the very first week and just to be able to, like, process the incredible change and to um, begin to accept my new surroundings anyway. And... Um, Thankfully, I've, I think I've made some good progress so far. So, yeah. <laughs> the the voice, the narration of your book is is very funny and it's fun. And Andy is such a teenage boy. And then the events that happen, there are different permutations of horrific violence. And they're almost in the background. Like these terrible things happen and then the narrative moves on, it seems, quite quickly. Can you talk about why you did that, how you handled the pervasive violence in in this book? Yeah, um, this theme of violence is a very, very strong post-colonial theme, right? In terms of the novel, I, like Andy and even myself, when I was growing up in Nigeria, um, 
we get to a stage where we become like desensitized to this violence, right? And then, and then we, we just seem to move on as a form of like psychological defense mechanism, whatever, as just a way to, of coming to terms with these things and dealing with them. Strongly wanted to do was to put a reader in that position of what it means to be a 15-year-old boy growing up in Nigeria. Like everything about the whole experience. I mean, from the violence to mm-hmm. issues that teens deal with, not just in Nigeria, but worldwide anyway. The sex, the anger, the angst, and all that. So, I mean, I was the just drama, trying to... The yeah, friend drama, the drama. <laughs> yeah. So I was trying to just depict all these things as much as I could do in a very engaging way and all that, yeah. It was it was so engaging and so fun and also so heartbreaking. Um, and oh, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Stephen Burrow. His novel is The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy Africa. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. Our next interview is with Max Porter about his new novel, Shy. Set in the 90s, the novel tells the story of a black teenager who attempts to escape the last chance school for troubled boys. Porter tells NPR Scott Simon about the book, how the titular character came to be, and how he built his world. Shy by Max Porter is a short, fierce novel that can be a rant, a rumination, a reveal, blank verse, and blunt talk. Shy, a troubled British teen in the mid-1990s, has been sent to the last-chance boarding school and has loaded his rucksack in the middle of the night to break out of his dorm and escape the bunk beds, the therapy groups, and the counseling sessions. Let's ask Max Porter to read what runs through the mind of the character he's created. His heart is bump, bump, bumping like he's scared. Idiot drama with no audience overthinking, overlapping voiceovers. We made such good progress today, Shy. I'm really delighted. He's sprayed, snorted, smoked, sworn, stolen, cut, punched, run, jumped, crashed an escort, smashed up a shop, trashed a house, broken a nose, stabbed his stepdad's finger, but it's been a while since he's crept. Stressful work. Psychologically disturbed juveniles requiring special educational treatment or a bunch of teenage criminals on a taxpayer-funded countryside retreat. Max Porter, author of Grief is a Thing with Feathers and other novels that have been translated into more than 30 languages, joins us now from Bath, England. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Hello. How did this character of Shy worm his way into your mind and heart? Well, he's there already because I'm raising three sons and I do a lot of mentoring with young people and I'm watching the way this country is working and what it's deciding to do with its vulnerable population and what it's deciding to do with inequality as a, as a pressing issue. But this specific boy rose up out of a kind of dream I'd had about a boy who was see-through, who was um, porous. Through him would pour the dead and the living as well as the human and the non-human, and I wondered how he would react to being an unhappy teenager in the so-called real world. 
And I was preoccupied with him in a medieval context and then in a Victorian context. And he, as a work in progress, he eventually landed himself in 1995. And I thought, yep, that'll do it. Well, help us understand the play of his mind as thoughts run through them, to use your words again, loping along in odd, repetitive chunks, running at him, stumbling. He's escaped this house, and, and the whole novel is a kind of nocturne that takes place over three hours as he makes his way to this pond and has a kind of mystical encounter there. But he's in a kind of weather system. He's being bombarded at all times by other people's sense of him, the judgment of his parents, their pleading, imploring desire for him to communicate better with them, the bullying of his peers. He has these kind of night terrors, these terrible flashbacks to his recent violent past. But also he is being haunted, both by society and by literal ghosts in the building he lives in. He's sort of a centrifugal absence at the centre of the book. It's difficult to get at who he is because he is so cluttered by other people's conception of him. And I think, if anything, that's the most realistic aspect of this book, is that we only begin and end in other people's ideas of us. You made reference to his recent violent past. Uh, I mean, I inevitably said troubled teen, but to be fair, he's also caused a lot of trouble, hasn't he? Yeah, he's done things for which he has no vocabulary of apology or, or shame. That's one of the themes running through the book is how does he make sense of having done these things and was it even him that did him? He's got a sort of disembodied criminal self that appears to have done these things. Um, and that's based on you know conversations I've had with people that have done terrible things about the kind of workings of guilt as an emotional and a political and a legal framework. But yeah, he's not a wholly sympathetic character. He's made terrible mistakes. He begins to see himself like a scrub plant in the countryside. Yeah. That's one of the things also that he shares with his teachers is this sense of what is worth saving, what is a waste product, what is a weed and what is a plant and what's the difference and how does society value its weeds and value its flowers and could it be that one is hiding inside the other the whole time. Why is the novel set in the mid-1990s? One of the things I noticed is nobody can reach shy on his cell phone. <laughs> Maybe cowardice on my part because I'm raising teenagers and I, and I just see that the paradigm shift of mobile phones is so significant. Bullying has changed. Flirting has changed. Everything has changed uh, for young people. They, they live on these phones now. Um, and, I, and I don't feel expert enough to deal with a situation as complex as shy with the phones thrown in. But also I think some of the things I wanted to say about British politics and care and his obsession with drum and bass music would have felt more like I was essaying if I'd set them in the present. And actually, I like that little bit of distance. I'm interested in a historical novel that breaks the rules of the historical novel by kind of showing, not telling. Particularly as a teenage boy, you know, he, he, he's a bragger. He's, a, he's in a cultural tribe. It's all show for him. So I was, I was interested in, um, in that little bit of distance. Um, and also, you know, at the end of a long period of conservative government in the UK before a notional time of change and progressive energy and I wanted to slightly question whether those things were an illusion or what they actually meant to the people uh, on the receiving end of those benefits. You read the novel and do find yourself wondering, it kind of reopens of a whole examination we've been through over the past generation, when is a human being a child? When are they considered an adult? I mean, we, for legal reasons, I suppose, we set arbitrary numbers, but uh, it can be awfully unsatisfying, can't it? Well, wholly, especially in as much as what is deemed to be childlike. I mean, I can speak from experience. I, I, I'm a childlike person. I'm not a man-child. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not acting the fool or anything, but I cherish my childishness. I locate it in grief. I locate it in losing a parent as a child and retaining some 
thin skinnedness, some craving for honesty, some craving for emotional enrichment, which is sometimes deemed to be of less value than financial or status-based progress in this life. But I also think that also Shai, if you look at Shai and his peers in that place, they're actually achieving phenomenally accomplished examination among themselves, kind of proto-sophisticated examinations of race and class and gender that is denied us in adult life. We, we simply stop talking about those things or we adopt a position in the culture war and just scream at one another. Whereas they're like trees in the wood. They have a kind of nutrient base that they're sharing and they're, they're teasing out of one another in, I think, in like weirdly accomplished ways. Can I chance to ask you, how do you, how do you see Cheyenne... 10 years or 30? The honest answer, if I'm, if I'm being unguarded, I want Shai to be in love. I want someone to have found him that makes him feel loved and for whom he can define himself in a mirror position to, that he can, as I was, as other people I know, have been saved by love, not necessarily of an individual maybe of a job or a, or a pastime. You know, that's why I gave him this music, that his despair is always tethered, is, is organically connected to this unbelievable joy he feels at the music. So I see him running a little gardening company and being in love and maybe having children or not being able to have children or whatever, but just finding that, that actually someone sees him and loves him. Max Porter, his novel, Shy. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Tim Bidermias. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Elena Burnett, Courtney Dorning, Alejandra Marquez-Hanse, Patrick Jaron Watananen, Julie Deppenbrock, Rina Idvani, Lily Kiros, Jan Johnson, Ryan Bank, Melissa Gray, Gabriel Donatov, and Ed McNulty. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks so much for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.